At Northrop Grumman, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report's weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Michael Daniel, the president of the Cyber Threat Alliance, a leading nonprofit organization that seeks to enhance cyber threat information sharing between government and across industry to improve cybersecurity. He's led the alliance since 2017. After spending five years at the White House as former President Obama's cybersecurity coordinator, before that, he spent nearly 20 years at the Office of Management and Budget, where he oversaw intelligence and national security affairs. Michael, absolutely great having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you for having me. Uh, absolute pleasure. Uh, and before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control, and Rafael USA sponsored uh, our recent coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Michael, Russia uh, and ransomware are both uh, in the news. They tend to be perennial favorites anytime uh, the word cyber uh, comes up. Uh, and it's let's let's start with ransomware. I mean, there's some real incredible chutzpah on the part of the uh, R-Evil or Revil or whatever they want to be called, the ransomware gang, after it was reported that the U.S. government took coordinated action to, to shut down the group, uh, the group released a statement accusing the U.S. government of being uh, the leading cyber bully on the Internet on a worldwide basis, you know, decrying the use of military means against simple criminals. Uh, their screed did read like something the Kremlin uh, would, would have issued. Uh, but some in the United States maintain that they actually have a point. Uh, that criminal organizations should be dealt with by law enforcement and, and not military or military and intelligence organizations. From your standpoint, is, is there something to their message? I certainly don't put much credence in the statement that our evil released. Oh, and by the way, there's an intense debate across the entire cybersecurity community as to exactly how to pronounce their name. So you can find a lot of people with opinions all up and down the, the spectrum. But I think the there is a point about exactly how we want to employ all the capabilities we have to deal with cybercrime. I mean, fundamentally, we still want to be about being a nation of laws, right? And so we want very much um, the principles of law enforcement to be driving what we do in our operations against cyber criminals. But I don't think that that does, I don't think that means that we have to forego the capabilities that Cyber Command could bring to the table. Now, we also have to be mindful of the fact that for all the time that Cyber Command or others like that are spending on criminal activities, they're not focusing on nation states. So I think we should be very careful and judicious about how we use those capabilities against those actors. But at this point, ransomware has become a national security and economic safe, a prosperity and a public health and safety threat. So I very much think it's appropriate to use all the tools of national power at our disposal. 
that's a, um, obviously a very important point, right? We're a nation of laws. We are, see ourselves as uh, enforcing global uh, norms uh, and standards. But, but how do you define these lines? I know you sat in the White House doing some of these very deliberations uh, at a time when uh, the you know, Sony hack and a number of other things were, were going on. What are the lines that we should be abiding by when our adversaries appear not to be observing any of those lines? That you know that they are using freelance hackers. They're using criminal organizations, right? I mean, I don't think anybody thinks any of these groups are operating in Russia without the tacit approval uh, of the Russian uh, government uh, any more than what the Chinese are doing, right? I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of amateur hackers that are part of sort of a national a hacking army. What what are the lines that we should be abiding by uh, and trying to enforce, understanding that our adversaries actually may not be abiding by any of those norms, standards, or separations? I think that there's a pretty clear set of activities, norms that have been um, promulgated, actually going as far back as the Obama administration. Um, but there's several UN uh, reports that uh, by what they call a, a group of governmental experts, which is really a fancy UN title for a group of representatives from various governments that have some expertise in a subject area. And there's been actually broad agreement on about 11 or so different principles that nations should uphold. And you're right, some of our adversaries don't uphold those. But I think if we want to really work towards a cyberspace, an eco a digital ecosystem that it brings prosperity and is actually useful for economic uh, work, for democracy, for other things uh, like that, that we need to be upholding those principles. And they're not complicated. There are things like don't attack critical infrastructure in peacetime. You know, respect cyber incident providers like you would uh, and national search like you would a hospital. Um, don't allow criminal actors to use your country as a staging area for conducting criminal activity. Um, the, those are the kinds of principles that we ought to uphold. We, but what I would say is that it's very easy for us to uphold those principles and still aggressively go after cyber criminals that are causing as much trouble and destruction as they are. Um, there's a lot of discussion on what else the administration should be doing. Obviously, a very, very qualified uh, team, uh, whether Chris Inglis, Ann Newberger, uh, Jen Easterly, and, and many, many others that are uh, working this issue on the, on the part of the White House with a, a great deal of urgency. We have Congress moving ahead with the Cyberspace Solarium Commission uh, recommendations to improve cybersecurity, and that stuff is moving apace, fortunately. Um, ultimately, what more do we need to be doing on the ransomware issue, right? I mean, the administration is convening um, some 30 nations to bring them together uh, to, or working with 30 nations to bring them together. Obviously, China and Russia aren't part of this. Um, what next has to be on the agenda from your standpoint to move this needle in a way that becomes somewhat more permanent, understanding that ransomware is something we've been dealing with for very many decades? When you take a look at the challenge, what we really got to do is we've got to do two broad things. One is we need to enable the private sector and the public sector act actions to be mutually reinforcing more than they currently are. So what this means is that when the government is taking action against 
groups, it needs to be mirrored by and supported by action in the private sector that the private sector can take on its own networks that um, you know, respect the fact that we're not talking about hackback or things like that, but that we can amplify what the government is doing, right? So that you basically get an amplifying effect across both the public and the private sector. So the impact on the adversaries is much higher. So that if you're disrupting their infrastructure, for example, that it actually um, is replicated across many different customers and clients. That if we're like removing their, you know, accesses and um, act doors and things from companies, that it happens to an enormous number of targets all at once, right? The other thing that we need to do is we need to increase the scope and the scale of the activities and the cadence of those activities. So in other words, that disruption operation that you referenced um, against our evil, we need to be doing that like once or twice a week, right? So that um, the impact that we have on the adversary is much higher. So that in fact, it actually begins to cost them real money and that you know, essentially the, the return on investment for conducting this kind of cybercrime is not nearly as high as it is right now. But those, those are the two basic lines of effort that we need to get much better at. And those are very hard uh, to do. This is not a simple task. You co-chaired a group uh, to try to get to uh, some of these uh, issues and do a better job. Talk to us a little bit about some of your findings. Sure. So I was part of the, I was one of the co-chairs, as you mentioned, of the Ransomware Task Force, which was a group of about 60 or so different experts from across uh, all parts of the um, private sector, from cybersecurity policy nerds uh, like me to, you know, incident responders to, um, you know, IT professionals and others, uh, some government representatives, um, so we had a really wide cross-section of expertise. And what we were looking at was, what do you really need to do to combat ransomware more effectively, more holistically? And when you look at that, it really consists of four broad categories of activity. One, we need to step up our ability to deter actors from getting into this game or even starting down this path. We need to disrupt those actors that are conducting ransomware activities, we need to disrupt them at a much higher cadence and at a much greater scope and scale than we are currently. We need to prepare our companies and organizations and infrastructure to be able to withstand ransomware attacks or prevent them from happening in the first place. And because inevitably some of the, those first three things are gonna fail some of the time, we need to get much better at responding rapidly and recovering from cyber uh, ransomware attacks when they happen. Um, and so that's really the, the core recommendations that the ransomware task force had. What are the obligations that companies have um, to improve their security game? Uh, because ultimately, these, their weaknesses are, are national security weaknesses. And companies historically, right? I mean, I think the banking industry is a, is a great example of uh, intrusions driving enormous amounts of spending on the part of the banks to uh, ensure that they don't get hacked uh, and, uh, and, and suffer from a debilitating attack. Whereas not everybody across, as we saw in the case of Colonial Pipeline, for example, um, companies are not spending 
uh, the amounts of money they need to spend because they look at it as spending as opposed to investment, right? Then intellectual property is a differentiator. Uh, and as a Chinese official once told me, you know, if any of this information, you know, when I raised the issue of you guys are sort of stealing us blind, his answer was, if it mattered to you, you'd protect it, wouldn't you? So, you know, please, you know, don't don't make it seem as though, um, you know, what we're doing is actually a big lift to try to take anything from you. What what is it? What are the messages? Right. I mean, because your organization sort of goes both ways in terms of of uh, both working with the government, but also working uh, with your member companies. Ultimately, you know, how do how do private companies have to step up their game in this battle? Well, I think that every company has a responsibility to invest in a certain degree of cybersecurity, right? Just like every company, we expect every company to uh, have good accounting, right? Like we expect any, whether you're a small business or a Fortune 500 company, you are expected to adhere to generally accepted accounting principles, right? Now, what that means if you're a you know, small business, if you're Flo's flower shop, you know, how those generally, um, uh, generally accepted accounting principles apply to you is very different than to, say, J.P. Morgan Chase, right, um, or a very large, you know, energy company. So similarly, the level of cybersecurity investment, the kind of cybersecurity we're going to expect, we should expect as a society, is very different for a small and medium business than it is for a large critical infrastructure provider. And so I think that some of this is that we need to do a better job as a society working out what are the expectations that we want to have for those entities that are providing critical national functions? And what do we think sort of the standard, the industry standard is? What's the standard of care that is just expected for you to be able to do business? And then if we as a government, as our as a society say, you know what, you provide such a critical national function that we actually expect you to go above that standard of care. Um, then we have to have a discussion about sort of how that works. Is it just a, is it a regulatory requirement? Is it, you know, is it, is there some sort of incentive? Is there, you know, grants or other kinds of funding made available? That's where we actually really need the, um, the policy discussion. But at a baseline level, I think it is it is not unreasonable for us to say that every uh, organization needs to, you know, be reaching for what is the standard of care in their industry given their size and capabilities. The Cyberspace Solarium Commission was talking about, um, you know, putting a requirement on companies to divulge uh, how they've been breached uh, effectively. Uh, that you know, sunlight being a disinfectant and, and getting managements to focus more on it, uh, on, on the issue of cybersecurity. Um, and, and the um, government is looking at uh, disclosure rules that if you discover uh, problematic code or problematic hardware, you have 24 hours to report it. Uh, otherwise, you could actually get in a lot of uh, trouble. From your standpoint, are both of these the right approach to get us to where Right, I mean, because we're using somewhat punitive means to try to do it. On the other hand, there are those who say that if, you know, if there isn't pain, nobody's going to move on this, right? I mean, we're having the ransomware problem in part because people pay the ransom and they keep quiet about it. And some of these are companies that keep getting hit over and over again. From your standpoint, what's the right way to do this? There, there always has to be some degree of 
you know, carrot and stick in this area. I mean, we, we have, we've known about a lot of these problems for more than a decade, you know, 20 years, in fact, some, you know, two decades, right? And so manifestly just purely voluntary approaches to all of this and relying on the market incentives is insufficient to get us to where we want to go. Now, I do think that when you start talking about uh, reporting provisions, there's a big difference between sort of a requirement that says you've got to tell the law enforcement and the government if you had a major cyber incident um, and you're a critical, you know, you're in a critical national function and you're performing a critical national function and you've had a cyber incident. There's a big difference between telling the government that and having it be public, right? So the, the, the reason for the disclosure, the breach disclosures is because that actually impacts customers, right? And so if your information has been disclosed in some fashion, then I do think that there should be an obligation on the company uh, that held that data to tell you that fact. Um, and in fact, we've got essentially breach notification laws in essentially all 50 states now. And the, you know, part of what the Solarium Commission was recommending is, well, let's actually make that a national standard so that it's not this patchwork of state by state requirements. Let's make it easier for our companies to actually comply with that. And a lot of the incident reporting legislation that is pending on the Hill right now is really about making sure that the government is aware of the incidents that are occurring so that we can get a sense of like, what is the scope and scale of the malicious activity because um, right now we're missing a lot of that data. How much more can we do in part of that carrot and stick balance? Well, I think we really have to get ser- we really have to get even more serious about really identifying what are those standards of care and pushing on the industry to develop those standards of care for their sectors. And the government, you know, really checking the homework and saying, really, okay, does this does this pass the laugh test? Does this really seem reasonable that these are the standards of care for this industry, you know, divided up by size uh, in some way, um, so that you really have that baseline um, that we know that we're measuring against, right? We want to continue to build out that collaboration capability so that the government and the private sector can work together. Uh, to counter these kinds of cyber threats. This is actually, you know, I would say we don't even have the right vocabulary to talk about this. Like we keep talking about public-private partnership, but that's that's like, a, you know, that's like synergy. Like it's, it, it's almost a meaning, it's, it's almost been used so many times that it's a meaningless phrase. But, you know, the government generally interacts with the private sector as a purchaser, uh, a regulator, or an enforcer. And this kind of relationship that we're talking about here is different. It's more of a peer type relationship. And it is more of a partnership, but is that the terminology that we really want to use for it? Um, And so we've really got to get much better at driving that kind of collaboration, though, between the public and the private sectors and doing that not just here in the United States, but doing that internationally to really step up that, that cadence that I was talking about so that we're actually imposing costs that really matter on the adversaries that we face. Are, are we going about this, Michael, in the right way, given the magnitude of the challenge? I mean, or, or do, right, I mean, we're, we're not generating nearly the number of cyber professionals we need. Um, we find that we continue to spend more money, but it's not enough, right? I mean, basically what we're trying to protect is a, pat, is a 
is a fundamentally open and collaborative system that we're trying to figure out how to fence off and to protect, right? Is there a technological solution to this? And do we need to have actually a different approach? Because it's not abundantly clear that the course we're on just seems to me like a lot of rowing and are are we getting, is the boat actually moving? So there's certainly not just a a purely technical solution to this problem because a lot of the issues around cybersecurity are actually in fact economic problems. So a, a core example of that is that while you know, while the media, while any company will always say in their statement when they've suffered an incident and they're having to be public about it that it was an extremely sophisticated actor, the truth is that most of the time it isn't very sophisticated. Um, that right. in fact the actor is getting in through a hole of vulnerability in software that we know about and we've known how to fix for years. So the company just didn't fix it. Now. It's not because they're stupid. It's not because they want to be hacked. It's because their incentive structure was not set up to incentivize them to um, focus on that, on addressing that issue. Um, the, but more fundamentally, right? We've got a problem in the cyber. We've got a problem in the software market, which is that the economic incentives in the software market are that you are first to market. That is the key. There is no prize for being second to market with a more secure product. That's called being dead in software terms. So the entire system is actually set up to continue to produce software that is vulnerable. Um, Moreover, we actually don't even know how to write truly secure code, right? At a fundamental, at a very fundamental level. So there, you are right that Um, there are some fundamental technological challenges that we need to address to take us all the way back to basics. But there are also economic problems. There are psychological issues. You know, um, a lot of times the cybersecurity industry, what did we advise people for years to do, right? When it came to your passwords. A lot of us in the, a lot of the industry was like, yes, you should have a password that's 16 to 20 characters long. That's not a word in any known language that includes a whole bunch of special characters. Oh, and by the way, have a unique one for every single website or service that you use online. Right. Right. Like any human can actually do that. Right. That makes no sense. So just just use variants of ABC one, two, three, and you're fine. Yeah, there you go. Yes. Uh, Just, you know, just iterate on the last number. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, that's, those are clearly not taking into account how people, how humans actually have to interact with the technology. And so we really need a combination of that, of people process and technology, right? People and incentives and technology. We need all of those things to be updated in order to actually deal with these issues. Um, let me ask you uh, two, uh, two quick questions, and we've got about two minutes left. Uh, first question is, um, the administration warned Russia against mounting another major uh, cyber intelligence operation that apparently is exactly what Moscow has, has done, uh, unsurprisingly. And, and again, even uh, American intelligence uh, officials will say that there is a difference, right? If the Russians are collecting intelligence or the Chinese are we do the same thing. We should not make an issue of, of that, which um, it is, is fair game uh, uh, effectively, right? I mean, the answer to that is better security from, from, from our perspective. Um, is, is there anything that can be done with these sorts of uh, what are deemed 
to be legitimate intelligence gathering operations? Well, that's where I think you're right, that the, the answer to that is, is not trying to, you know, stamp our feet and, you know, wag fingers about what are essentially espionage operations. Now, we can, we can say that, you know, they've gone too far or that they're too risky or that it's too difficult to distinguish them from what might be a disruptive operation. And that might be an avenue to pursue if we really think that. But I really think that it's about, you know, improving our defenses, improving our capability to rapidly detect those kinds of operations and disrupt them once we find them. Um, we are not going to stop nations from conducting espionage. Um, that is too fundamental to their, na to their national security. It's too fundamental to our national security for our, what we do. And so really it's about ensuring that such activity is not destabilizing and in a way that is escalatory and might be mistaken for other kinds of activity. Uh, your organization's focus is uh, threat information uh, sharing. Uh, and for the longest time, that threat information was not being shared the way it should be. I know you worked that issue when you were at the White House, and certainly you're passionately advocating it. Uh, now, how, how are we doing and how much better do we have to do? Chris Krebs gets a lot of credit at CISA, although I, I should also say Suzanne Spalding uh, deserves credit when uh, she was Chris's uh, predecessor before it was known as CISA. Uh, so, I mean, it's not like folks have not been working. Uh, the folks at NIST have been doing the same thing. But talk to us a little bit about where we are and where you think we need to be when it comes to threat information sharing. Because unless everybody has that visibility and has it quickly, you know, you're behind the eight ball. Yeah, so I think that we're much better than we were, say, 10 years ago. Um, so that's the good news. The bad news is that we actually have to do a lot more. And part of the issue is we now need to differentiate when we talk about cyber threat intelligence sharing. We need to differentiate what kind of threat intelligence we're talking about, and we need to differentiate who's sharing it and trying to do what with it. So if you're a cybersecurity provider, Right, you can consume, you can produce and consume very technical cyber threat intelligence. If you're a mid-size energy company or a water supply company, right, your technical capabilities are not necessarily going to be uh, that great. And guess what? That's okay. We actually don't need you to develop those capabilities. What instead we need to be doing is when we talk about sharing with those kinds of companies, we need to be very focused on what information do they need to improve their cybersecurity. And oftentimes that's not vast reams of technical information. It's very specific actions that they can take on their network to change settings, to patch a vulnerability, to take some step that they need to, uh, that they need to take. And so CTA is dedicated to the idea that the the really advanced technical companies that are the cybersecurity providers, they should be sharing the technical data at speed, at scale, working to develop the human analytic capabilities, and then using that to protect their customers and clients. And that what we need to be focused on for the rest of the ecosystem is a different kind of information sharing that really focuses on the decisions that those entities need to make on a day-to-day -day basis? What do they need to do differently today than they were doing yesterday in order to uh, maintain or even raise their cybersecurity? 
So I think the really the next phase is getting much more sophisticated and nuanced in our understanding of what we mean when we talk about cyber threat intelligence sharing and focusing it much more on the business value, the value to the business of the receiver and the producer of that intelligence. Michael, thanks so very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure having you on and look forward to having you uh, on again many more times in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. From cyberspace to outer space, Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit northropgrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.